This is the John Oakley Show podcast. It is a great day for talk radio. By the way, uh, every now and then we like to dip into the legal pool, as I say, so that we can sort of get our heads wrapped around certain decisions that may have bewildered, perplexed, you know, head-scratching stuff, uh, especially, you know, as a parade of cases come by, uh, certainly on my desk, and I defer to the experts in this case because I can't figure it out, but uh, it's starting to see a familiar routine or pattern here of cases being dismissed. The evidence uh, has been arrived at, I guess, uh, in a violation of constitutional rights. There's a story out of Kitchener where an accused fentanyl trafficker, uh, 5.3 grams of fentanyl found in his backpacks and marijuana, digital scale, empty dime bags and cash, and he walks. And uh, why was the linchpin in this, his constitutional rights that were violated? Let's find out. Michael Lacey has joined us on the line with the criminal law group, Browdy Thorning Zabaris. Michael, good to have you back on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to join you. All right. You familiar with this case out of Waterloo? I, I am, and, and I'm familiar with uh, the fact that Justice Perry, who's a, a very well-regarded judge out of that court, the former uh, practiced in criminal law for a long period of time, uh, but he excluded the evidence in, in a case where he found some serious charter violations in terms of the way the police were dealing with the accused that led to the discovery of the drugs with fentanyl. All right. Can you give us a, a quick overview of how the police might have breached the constitutional rights of the accused here? Well, as I understand it, uh, there they had challenged, the defense had challenged whether or not uh, the officer had the right to uh, stop the accused. The, the officer came to investigate a bunch of people that were together. The accused had an e-bike and he left. Um, and the officer decided that uh, he was leaving at what he called a high rate of speed, despite the fact that the e-bike had a maximum speed limit, I believe, of 50 kilometers. And he used that as grounds to detain the accused, to uh, then form grounds to arrest him for what he believed were drug-related offenses, to search him, search his backpack, and that's when he found the 53 uh, grams of, of fentanyl that obviously it's a very serious drug and that was something that the judge took into account it's an insidious drug that causes as you know horrible effects in the community has led to a number of overdoses uh, mostly leading in death when you overdose on fentanyl but when he looked at all of the circumstances together um, including the what he, he found a pattern of constitutional violations by the police officer he, he was of the view that there was really no choice but to exclude the evidence in that case. Right. So it was the method by which the officer secured the evidence that was the linchpin. In fact, uh, because he had done this thing, I guess, uh, based on his own assumptions, uh, he had no reasonable grounds for search and seizure, and that tossed everything. Yeah, and, and you know, I know this can be a difficult uh, thing to accept to some extent. I mean, I, I'm sure your callers will say, you know, how is it that these criminals get to walk free? But we don't have an automatic exclusionary rule in Canada. So what happens is, you know, we all have constitutional violations. And if you think about your own experiences, we, we wouldn't tolerate it if the police were able to just uh, demand to come into our residence and search our homes or search our computers without any basis to do so. We, we'd say, well, that's that we're not going to live in that kind of community. And in Canada, we have a rule that says where the police violate what we believe to be our, our there are constitutional rights, but as a community, we've decided these are really important rights to protect. When the police violate those rights, judges then have to balance whether or not, in light of the violations, 
it's an appropriate case to exclude the evidence, or in some instances, often, the evidence is not excluded. The evidence is actually admitted. So I know you see, you know, across your desk, these cases that get attention in the media. You don't always see the cases where there's serious constitutional violations, but the evidence get, gets admitted. But that happens every day. Uh, in Ontario and across the country as well. Okay, but if we're to accept uh, that this individual, the alleged dealer uh, with a backpack on an e-bike, now they quibbled over how fast he left the scene when the officer came by. The officer said he followed him for seven blocks and the guy exceeded 50 kilometers an hour, which apparently is impossible because the e-bike only has a limit. Uh, This surfaced as, I guess, one of the defense points raised in the court. But even then, just leaving the scene when a police car shows up, would that not be uh, creating suspicion of or giving a viable reason to want to pursue the individual and check out what they've got in their backpack? Well, you know, you take take it one step at a time. It, It may be that police officers attending on the scene and if someone flees the scene, it may give cause for a police officer to investigate, to, to want to, what we call an investigative detention even, ask the person to stop, to ask them some preliminary questions. Here the officer purported to do that, um, although, as, as you noted, the, the judge found that it seemed to be that his reason for doing so wasn't viable as a matter of logic. But he stopped him, and then the guy gave him his his name, so he properly identified himself, but then the officer decided he was going to search his backpack for identification, none of which, you know, is is admissible or proper. In other words, the police have a duty to investigate, um, and things can happen that warrant some further investigation, but the police can't just go from their duty to investigate to say, I want to look at everyone's backpack because I came upon a scene that seems suspicious to me. You know, we, we, we have these rights to protect everyone against the police going too far. And that's what happened in that case. The officer just went much further than was constitutionally permissible in the absence of any reasonable grounds to do so. That's the key part of Justice Perry's decision. Yeah, he went on to say that the officer was most likely, quote, engaged in an unlawful and unjustified general inquisition of the man's possible involvement in criminal activity. So he gave the benefit of the doubt based on a constitutional right against unreasonable search and seizure to uh, the alleged perp here, the drug dealer. What's interesting, though, is, you know, this is uh, apparently the sixth time in the last 12 months that local judges have tossed charges because of charter violations. What does it signal to you that this is a gray area police don't understand, shoddy police work, they're taking shortcuts, uh, the judges are clamping down on this kind of stuff, protecting charter rights? How do you see it? Well, each case obviously is decided on its its own facts, and it's not a matter of giving the benefit of the doubt to the accused. When you bring a charter application, the onus is on the accused, actually, to establish uh, on a balance of probabilities that there's been a charter violation or if it's a warrantless seizure for the Crown to establish on a balance of probabilities there's, there's a charter violation. But, but what I'd say is that if you're seeing a, a string of cases in certain communities where uh, charges or evidence is being excluded, it's because it, it may be that the um, police agency in that region, and I'm not speaking about a particular case or a particular police agency, but that there's a pattern or systemic uh, misconduct in terms of the way in which they treat charter rights. There was a, a series of cases, for example, in the northern in northern Ontario with a particular police officer who always seemed to uh, stop people and, and find drugs. And ultimately, the case made its way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And that 
pattern, it turned out, was a product of him just engaging in random, random stops of people uh, and then just manufacturing grounds to search their vehicles. And the Court of Appeal uh, ultimately concluded that this pattern of systemic conduct warranted exclusion of the evidence in the case that they saw. So I, I wouldn't take from what you're seeing if you think there's a pattern of exclusion that this is judges being soft on crime. That's not what it is at all. All right. Well, there was another interesting story. Uh, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We're out in Chilliwack in uh, 2017 where the dog handler, the, the police officer with his dog, his sniffer dog, uh, actually after apprehending somebody, uh, pulling him over for speeding, decided, you know, uh, same idea. Maybe he intuited that there was something else going on here, and he brings out the sniffer dog. And the sniffer dog, uh, upon signaling that he's identified something uh, illicit, would... Uh, sit down, but because the car was up against the curb, the dog couldn't fully sit, and so this was interpreted as not being definitive of the dog having identified anything in the car, and that case, in part, was tossed on that premise. Uh, did you get a laugh out of that, or did you find that to be a valid reason, legitimate purpose to uh, dismiss? Well, you know, sometimes the, the, the facts are always in, in the eyes of the person or the story that you're reading. I mean, I, I went back and read the actual court decision in that case, and um, I'm not sure I agree necessarily with all of the characterizations of what the facts were. One of the important points in that case was that the defense actually called an expert dog handler and explained why the officers claimed that there had been a partial um, or a complete sort of uh, uh, notification by the dog was inaccurate and was contrary to training, et cetera, et cetera. So the judge there was faced with a different factual scenario. Um, dog handler cases are unique as well in the sense that you can only use a dog to do a ran You can't do a random search with a dog. You have to have reasonable suspicion. That's what the Supreme Court of Canada said. And then once the dog indicates, that could give rise to reasonable and probable grounds, but the dog must clearly indicate. And I, I have to say the exclusion in that case, when the judge came him ultimately to exclude the, exclude the evidence, it was a very close call because he found in that case the officer was acting in good faith. It wasn't a deliberate charter breach, but when he came to balance the relevant factors, it was that judge's decision in BC that it, it warranted exclusion. But, it, but again, you know, you can look at the exclusion cases to try and, and draw some kind of pattern, but what you're not looking at are all those other cases where in you know, where, judge, where police officers just make good faith mistakes, mm -hmm. um, errors in judgment, the evidence is often included and is often not excluded. And those cases happen with much more frequency than when you see evidence excluded. And judges take into account the seriousness of the underlying conduct, like when it's fentanyl. All right. Well, it's uh, obviously a little more involved than if the dog doesn't sit, you must acquit, uh, which made for a good story. But again, Michael Lacey, last question here, because we've seen now recently as well, consecutive sentences being handed out. The MacArthur sentence will be handed out tomorrow. This is the individual with the eight first degree murders in uh, the gay village. Uh, is this a de facto death sentence? If, you know, you're getting 150 years, you're already 67 or, you know, even 50 years. Uh, is this just a a clever way of ensuring that person never sees the light of day again, or uh, is it something else that, uh, you know, a, a, an important principle to reinforce? 
Well, you know, I've talked about this, and, and you know, I, a life sentence is a life sentence in Canada, even before you get consecutive parole and eligibility periods. And, and the best argument I've seen about increasing the parole and eligibility periods is one that you've brought up on your show, uh, John, and other people have talked about victim rights advocates, is that you then don't have to subject the families to going back to parole hearings, as, as happened in the Bernardo situation just last year, I believe it was. And, and I see there's some value to increasing parole eligibility in those cases where it's appropriate and palpable that the person should never be released from custody. And if MacArthur doesn't fit that bill, I, I'm not sure who else would. Um, you know, 50 years on a guy who's admitted all of these horrific things that he did. I mean, I, I predicted the Crown might ask for 75, but 50 certainly will make sure that he is not even eligible to apply for parole uh, in, in the time period that he'll live. And, you know, I think for, the, for those rare cases where you have uh, people who are just beyond rehabilitation based upon the nature of the offenses, that that's really what the increase in parole ineligibility is for. But, but I hope your listeners don't think that life 25 is not really life. It is a life sentence, and parole is never a foregone conclusion, whether it's 25 years parole and eligibility or 50 or 75. All right. Uh, you may have some work to do to uh, impress or convince the, the cynical, but uh, we'll leave it at that. Michael, it's always a pleasure to get your insights, and uh, we'll do it soon. All right. You take care, John. Thanks for inviting me. You got it. Michael Lacey, criminal partner at Browdy Thorning and president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. We'll come back in a moment. Uh, other things that we wanted to address, and then we'll talk to Alex Berenson after the news at 5 o'clock. He's a former New York Times reporter on the downside of marijuana, and uh, he says we're really uh, on the precipice of a colossal social experiment that may actually reap a pretty bitter harvest. We'll get to that, too, in our Topics Worthy of Discussion panel into Hour 2. The Oakley Show continues. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.